Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest for this show is somebody who's been in the news a bit recently. Claire Fox is the founder and director of the Academy of Ideas. She's also convener of the Battle of Ideas, which is a festival that happens every year in London. And it's a kind of a fixture now on the debating circuit. Um, but she's become maybe better known to a wider public over the past week because she was recently announced as a candidate for the Brexit party for the upcoming European elections. Hello Claire. Hello. Good to see you. Um, what's it been like over the past few days? It's had a very different feel to my normal political life because people want to treat you differently because you're standing for election and that's fair enough. So it's been something of a whirlwind. Um, I've been trying to negotiate the variety of hostile hit jobs, uh, the various uh, uh, attacks on social media. But I think it's been exciting as well because I, just on the way here, was stopped in the street by someone who said, thank you so much for standing. And so, you know, for every time you kind of look at Twitter and think, oh, what have I done? It's also been gratifying to meet, uh, dare I say, ordinary voters who are much more enthusiastic and excited, I suppose. Have you, have you actually ever stood electorally before for anything? I stood many years ago um, for um, uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party when I was very young in an election. I got barely a few votes. Oh. I, I, I did stand in student union elections and I was elected as a full-time student union officer um, yeah. for a couple of years, but nothing, nothing like this. And I never aspired to. I had no intentions of ever getting involved in mainstream politics in this way. But you see, oh, but there, thereby hangs a tale because you were very clear about it at the launch when you were announced. But I wonder if you could just, for viewers, explain what brought you to this. This is a big thing because you come from an entirely different uh, political tradition to many of the people who will be standing for the Brexit Party, although I think it's a mixture. But what brought you to it? I mean, this, is, this, is, this was a real decision, wasn't it, that you made? I, I, I increasingly felt that democracy was at a watershed and I kept meeting people who were in despair, furious despair, about the fact that they would never vote again. Yeah. They could not get over what had happened in terms of the sellout of Brexit. I mean, you can imagine that people, you know, all their lives have believed in the democratic process. They thought if you won in a referendum, that that would mean that you'd win and that then it would be implemented. And having watched three years of politicians doing everything to water down or ultimately overturn that democratic vote, the palpable sense of people feeling, that's it now, I'm never ever voting again, made me realise that we were at a, a turning point mm. in politics. And especially, I think, if you imagine for those, you know, five million Labour voters or people who were kind of saw themselves as left of centre, you know, Brexit wasn't a left-right thing. Mm. It's it's caricatured and characterised as far right by those who wish to discredit it. So I'm not having a go at right wing ideas. I mean, there's right wing ideas, I'm left wing, so be it. But to try and kind of say to those people who are on the left, Labour voters, that they are right wing because they supported Brexit, to feel abandoned in that way, I felt that as somebody on the left, maybe I needed to throw my hat in the ring. Did you actually get involved in the original referendum campaign in any way? I did, not, not in any of the formal campaigns. Yeah. I was 
endlessly invited to speak, yeah. either on the media or at universities or schools about Brexit. And I did do that. And I certainly was, in, in my own small way, a campaigner for it. You mentioned there about people saying, I'll never vote again, what have you. I mean, from your political perspective, were you still, are you still shocked at the way this has been, you know, basically treated by the political class? I mean, or you could say, well, some people say, well, you know, it's to be expected, they'll never let it happen. But I, frankly, have been amazed yeah. at quite how blatant it's been. I, you know what? I feel so naive. I mean, straight after the referenda, referendum happened, so many people said to me, they won't let it happen, they'll stop it. And I thought they were being like kind of mad conspiracy yeah. theorists. Yeah. I could see that there was a concerted effort at demonising Brexit voters. The speed and rapidity with which um, the, the, there was attempts to delegitimise the vote, you know, blaming Russian bots or, you know, everyone was brainwashed or saying that uh, people were stupid and not educated, all that happened. But I still thought in the end, they had to see it through. I think the, um, the revelations that came out in the checkers deal, or the checkers discussion, when I looked at what they had been actually negotiating, I then, it dawned on me finally, my God, they have spent all this time trying to avoid leaving. They have sat with EU bureaucrats to come up with the worst possible kind of a fudge, not even a fudge of a deal, not a compromise deal, mm, yeah. an attempt to keep the United Kingdom completely entangled in all the institutions of the EU. And that revelation, uh, frankly, as you say, it shocked me and I thought, mm. oh, I thought, I thought somehow, somewhere, they must be trying to act in good faith and I don't believe that now. No, no, uh, exactly. What about your, what about your colleagues and people that you, <coughs> in in the kind of, if you like, your environment? What has the reaction been? Have you, you, you mentioned at the launch that, you know, here it goes, we're going to get the trolling, we're going to get this and that on Twitter. But what has the reaction been to your, your standing? So there's two reactions. I mean, it's been very gratifying that quite a lot of people have um, congratulated me. Um, possibly secretly, well, lots of direct yeah. messages from people I would not expect at all, you know, Remain supporters who've said, well, at least you put your money where your mouth is and it yeah. takes, you know, that's fine. I think that, however, for a lot of people, it's, people keep saying it's a step too far, whatever that means. And I think what they are trying to do, which happens all the time in politics today, in a kind of culture wars of politics, it's a kind of do a guilt by association, yeah, you know, yeah. it, you know, I can't. Now these, I have to stress, are not uh, ordinary voters. This is uh, amongst my liberal peers. Right. And, but I think that there's been a genuine um, shockwaves, e even amongst people who voted Remain, who are quite established in media circles or in liberal circles, even they've been shocked yeah. by the fact that this referendum result is being attempted to be overturned. I mean, there are obviously a group of people who are actively doing that. Mm. I mean, the hardcore, you know, they call themselves Romaniacs. I mean, mm. not, I don't use that word. Um, but I think that for the people, they just assumed somehow that it would happen. So I think that they, even they themselves understand why I'm doing it. Mm. But on the other hand, I'm not exactly on the dinner party circuit, but <laughs> I'm tolerated amongst those who are. I think I will... <laughs> 
Um, I'm get even, uh, you know, I won't even be invited to the kind of drinks. Right. That's the story. <laughs> but I can live. Well, what about your what about your family? Uh, are they sort of, are they Remainers? Are they Brexit people? Or are they mixture? Or? So my family was split. Um, many people voted Leave. I'm from I'm from Wales originally, but I'm also from an Irish uh, background. So my Irish family are um, going along with a lot of what the discussion is in Ireland are very um, hostile to Brexit. Although have you know I kind of visited them recently for a family uh, holiday and. You know, I w when I was talking to them, you could see that some of them were thinking, oh, maybe she's got a point. I hadn't heard that side right, of the story. Yeah, yeah. In my most immediate family and in-laws and people like that, a lot of them voted leave. And in fact, they had a big impact on me because, you know, you know, family visits at Christmas, um, they were really saying things like, you go back to London and you tell them as though somehow, because I was gonna have the opportunity to come back and tell anyone, but they are, um, rightly incandescent about what's happened and by the way you know uh, like all of the caricatures are so misplaced a wide range of different socio-economic backgrounds and professions and jobs represented and to be a, described as stupid and mm -hmm. ignorant has really galled them I think the greatest insult that they found is the idea that they're racist I mean yeah. these are tolerant decent people now some of my family voted remain and to my surprise, to my surprise, um, uh, um, their attitude was, well, the good guys, we lost, the good guys lost, mm. right? They, they're still enthusiastic about being in the EU. I wouldn't say madly enthusiastic, but they thought it was the right thing to do. But they have admitted to me that they did assume that after a few months it would calm down and then we'd all yeah, really yeah, yeah. sort of sit down yeah. as a country and say right now we're leaving the EU now let's have a discussion about what we're going to do about our industrial strategy or what we're going to do about um, uh, uh, kind of building new policies when we've got a, a, a democratic mandate to do it and so it kind of had a potential excitement there so they funnily enough have become quite sympathetic right, okay. to the leave cause because they can't understand why this backlash has occurred. In other words, it's very kind of Westminster bubble central. Oh, yeah. This yeah. idea that mm. everybody you voted remain mm. uh, wants us to, uh, uh, to stay in, that um, everybody uh, who voted leave is having second thoughts. I mean, they are talking to themselves. Yeah. One thing that has surprised me and interested me about the referendum campaign, I don't know you, you first, discussed it with Lionel Shriver when she was on recently, was um, that there used to be this thing, uh, there were people who wanted to come out, you're skeptics, going back now, and there were people who basically thought, on oh, balance, it's kind of a good thing to be in. But what, there seems to be this group now who are emotionally attached to the EU, you know, with all the, the painted faces and everything. What do you make of that? Well, I think that there is uh, a, a, some kind of a crisis politically anywhere we, way in which we've seen that uh, a meaningful commitment to principles and ideas have been undermined by kind of years of technocracy. And mm. um, in the course of that, we've seen the emergence of identity politics, people searching for a way of understanding themselves and finding an identity. And I think that the kind of lever remainer um, kind of identities have kind of consolidated in a way that mm. you wouldn't have thought, you know, people kind of see themselves through those titles. I mean, I have been bemused 
um, by the sudden enthusiasm for the European Union, which we've never witnessed. I mean, there is no, now. Exactly, yeah. It is true that the UK probably, they boast of this, and I think this is true, that there probably is now a more active, zealot, you know, kind of almost religious kind of fervour of an attachment to the European Union in this country than any other country in the rest of Europe. But I still can't untangle what exactly it is they're being enthusiastic about. It's sort of, the thing is, it's entirely uncritical, it seems to me. It's, it's not about, you know, there used, used to be the argument, we'll stay in and reform it. But these people are not even saying that. No. It's like they are attached to this thing. Yes, and, and there's, it, in that sense, it really is an identity. It's, it's, I mean, you know, it kind of mirrors some of those ideas about, like, virtue signaling. You know, it's mm -hmm. like sort of, by this, this means that we believe in peace. As though everybody else wants war. Yeah, exactly. And by yeah. this, um, I am yeah. showing that I'm interested in other countries and I'm an internationalist. And I said, well, I am a proud European. Yeah. And they look at me and they can't understand it. I said, yeah. I love Europe. I'm passionate about European culture. I, you know, all of these things. My objection is to the European Union. They cannot untangle these two concepts. They've got no sense that the European Union is an entirely modern, relatively recent, artificial top-down construct mm. that has been set up to ring fence um, national sovereignty in a range of different countries and to gather the power to itself and so mm. on and so forth. Mm. I, I hardly need rehearses. They seem to think that, you know, if you are um, a Leave voter, that you therefore hate Beethoven. Yeah. That oh, you no, can't, well, actually you know, had that uh, argument, yeah, I think, no, actually. I, I was pointing out that Beethoven might have been pre-EU yeah. and that possibly. <laughs> and, um, you know, that when I say, uh, you know, I, I talk about, um, um, you know, whether it's kind of like the European Enlightenment ideals that have inspired me, you can see them kind of looking at me like, I <laughs> they just cannot get their heads around it. And that yeah. indicates to me that it's not, uh, I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's pretty two-dimensional kind of adherence to this notion of the EU. The EU, of course, sell it that way. I yeah, mean, it really yeah, is yeah. presented as this kind of all-loving family. When I try and point out things like what's happening in France, you know, and you don't have to be a supporter of the Gilets jaunes movement that goes on the streets every weekend and demonstrates. And I'm not trying to pretend that they are all demanding to leave the European Union. But I try and point out, well, you know, France with kind of led by Saint Macron, the mm. liberal EU leader who, you know, is heralded by us in this country as somehow the kind of leader we want, is at war with his own people and sending in brutal police uh, riot teams that are actually injuring people, not getting very much publicity in this country. Ordinary French people being treated like dirt. Mm. But when I sort of say that, I'm not, I, I, I'm simply saying, what do you think about that? I mean, that must make yeah, yeah. you have an anxiety moment in relation to the yeah, EU. Yeah. And it's utterly, it's like as though they're in denial. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing because they, uh, very often the people who are most zealous about the European Union think that people who want to leave it know nothing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we were something of an insurgency in the build-up to that referendum. So what I found was that people didn't know which way to vote. I mean, there was a hardcore of people who'd already decided to leave the European Union. Millions of, not 17.4 million people didn't think that. They, however, took their responsibility very seriously. They started reading up. 
They started thinking about it. They started talking to their friends about it. They did not read the side of a bus. They actually went and looked at details. I mean, I went, one, one woman rather, uh, I, I told this story before, but I loved it, where she said, well, Claire, we've got a family conference this weekend <laughs> and I've got, Jim has gone to the library. <laughs> yeah, Judy's Googling. Yeah. We're looking at things like tariff controls. We're looking at, all, you know, and I said, oh, are you? Yeah, now, I've yeah. no idea which way they voted, but they were the kind of people who the media would have presented as, you know, no qualifications, stupid people who believed some soundbite. Mm. No, they weren't. Mm. They thought this mattered. Mm. And they went off, and as they were from North Wales, where I'm from, and North Wales voted to leave, they might well have been to their family conference decided. But the point I'm making is, if you're kind of going against Project Fear and the whole establishment giving you their version, yeah. you had to find out yourself. So in some ways, I think the people who voted Leave had thought about the European Union rather more than some of the people who nodded through a vote to stay. And also those people who nodded through the vote to stay, as you, as you put it, or people... There, there, was a, there has been a sense as well that, you know, they've had it their own way for a long time and then they were suddenly challenged. And yeah. I think that this, this kind of anger vitriol yeah. must be as a result of that. And I think people un often underestimate the fact that I really meant that point about technocracy. You know, the political classes over the last couple of decades have basically gutted their own parties of any kind of meaningful social base, of any mm. principle, of any ideals, and have increasingly ring-fenced off decision-making from the vast majority of people by saying, oh no, don't you worry your little heads we make these decisions on your behalf. And I've also talked down to people a huge amount. You know, it's not, people think it's to do with austerity. It's not as simple as that. It's not like a poverty point, but it is a poverty of aspiration. If you're kind of treated as though you're poor people who need looking after yeah. and actually need lecturing because you're no good at rearing your children, you drink rather too much, you break the units rules, you, you kind of, you, you know, your kids go to McDonald's, you know, all of these kind of yeah. nanny state things. I think being treated as though you're slightly less than full citizens has yeah. grated over the years. And here was a chance for people to take themselves seriously. A, a very important part of this is I think we all discovered their agency. Yeah. You know, um, take back control became more than just take back our national sovereignty that people popularly said we want to decide on uh, politics and the future, uh, uh, um, future orientation of the country. I think they saw it as themselves saying, I want control over my life. This, this means my vote will count. But it was a reaction against, as you say, the, the, the absolute grinding down of people's um, sense of pride yeah. in themselves, in their communities, being constantly told that they had the wrong attitude, yeah. being t constantly treated as though they were not up to decision making. And I think that, you know, that's not historically the way um, ordinary people in this country view themselves and I think this was a chance to go oh we're back we're back <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you remember us and um, and yeah, yeah. I was impressed by the way I I, uh, I was very impressed by how brave people were I mean I was at one event I mean I was just in the audience and it had all of the usual suspects you know CBI and CEOs of multinationals and they were getting a bit panicky about the um, the polls this was in the build-up and a CEO of a multinational stood up and he said, you know, I want you to go back to your workplace tomorrow and you tell people there will be no jobs 
no jobs if they vote leave. You know, we will be closing down. And I said, well, you know, they're not serfs. You don't own them. You can't. Yeah. But I remember going home and saying to, to my, my, my partner, well, you know, if they do that, I mean, people are going to panic, aren't they? Yeah, they're going to yeah. not, they're going to be terrified. Well, I was wrong. I underestimated people. I mean, no, they no, did go no. back. Yeah. They gave those yeah. lectures to their workforces as though they were somehow beneath them and threatened them. Yeah. People said, right, we've heard you. Thank you. And then went vote leave. Yes, I mean, it's fabulous. Exactly. You said that at the beginning, right at the beginning, it's not a left-right thing. Um, and, I, and I see that. But, you know, you, you are from the left. You were in the RCP, the Revolutionary Communist Party, which I, I guess you would call yourself a Trotskyist. Wouldn't you? Um, there's this saying now, you know, left and right is no longer helpful. You hear this. Would you say that? Would you say you agree with that? Do you think it's not? Wh where do you? What I'm trying to say is, where would you put yeah. yourself now? It's very difficult, isn't it? Because those labels sound and feel like real res restrictions. Mm. I've only kind of started doing the. Um, the emphasis on the left because I consider myself to be on the left but I also know how unhelpful it is you know mm. if I say oh I was the publisher of LM magazine which was living Marxism you know people say to me oh yes but don't Marxists believe that the state should run everything and I say no and then I feel like I'm in some sort of undergraduate politics lesson mm. and mm. we're going to misunderstand each other is what mm. I'm saying mm. but I have thought for a long time that left and right have become unhelpful yeah. there are serious problems in left-wing politics I hardly need to say this to you but you know, I, you know, people will describe it as the regressive left. That you know, the, the left have fully embraced identity politics, have mm. fully gone down a very censorious route in terms of banning ideas they don't like. You know, what do you do? You know, I'm an anti-racist who fought for women's liberation, but I know that when somebody says, you know, as an anti-racist, I find that offensive. That means they're going to close it down. I have to come in there. That's the title of your book. That is the title of my book. <laughs> Very well done. I, I find that offensive. But I, I mean, that's where the title comes from, is it? I heard it so often. Yes. And it was often my erstwhile peers on the left, you know, who, who were the ones who were leading the charge on these things, who were, I thought it's also developed a rather, to, to relate to that previous point, developed a rather kind of almost like a social work paternalism when it came mm. to uh, working class people, which is they kind of talked about them as though they were kind of poor and needy and needed looking after and saving. Some kind of like Victorian missionary work was going on. And I thought this was very different to the kind of, you know, standing up for oneself and, 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 mm. and, and, and self-organisation that I was associating with the left. I always understood it, because an uh, old friend of mine was in the RCP at Kent University when I was there. Um, it was this sort of sense of potential that the, the modern left is all about making you a victim. And That's weak, right. uh, whereas the, if you like, the the harder left, for want of a better expression, we, you know, the Marxist belief was that you know there's nothing we can't do if we do it together. Um, I suppose the interesting thing with you, Claire, obviously you've been on more Mays, you're on Question Time, is that so many people who would consider themselves on the right or conservatives or whatever would find themselves agreeing with you entirely. But these are usually about what you would call cultural issues, are they not? I mean, this That's book right. of yours. Uh, what is it? Um, I find that offensive, or I think it's. I still find that offensive. They've just now. brought it, a second brought edition out. out. Yes, okay. yeah. That is about, isn't it? Identity politics. It's about the snowflake generation. I think you coined that, didn't you? Or did you? No. Okay. Um, All right. But I'll come back but to that. I think on the on the on the. But I'll explain. I mean, I I I use a phrase because I'm actually looking at the culture wars in America. Yeah. And when I wrote the books, maybe some of the 
the more regressive trends in relation to censoriousness on campus were not as widely felt in this country. And I was almost writing a book as a warning call. I could see that it was happening. And the phrase that was being used in American politics at the time was Generation Snowflake. Snowflake yeah. And so I kind of wrote the book both about but to Generation Snowflake to try and explain this idea of a kind of rather oversensitive, thin-skinned, bannet kind of generational mood that I detected. And, um, but Wikipedia now say that I popularised the phrase and I'm responsible for the phrase. And actually, it's a rather derogatory phrase and it's a bit like, you know, I actually don't like the phrase. So I just used it in the book and so that's what's happened. But on your point, it's very important, isn't it? I think you've, you've spotted this in a lot of the work that you've done. You know, in the culture wars, the left-right thing doesn't work anymore. I mean, to be frank with you, there's far too many people on the right, by the way, who go along with victim politics. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there, are, there are all sorts of people who are yeah. in the culture wars settling in different areas. I agree that the traditional left led the charge in, in terms of some of the things that I most despise in today's culture wars, in terms of the, the victim politics, the identity politics. And also, there's the kind of risk-averse element of yeah. society now. Uh, you make this point in the book, I think it's a very good one, about uh, the way that kids are mollycoddled. Now, that this might actually be, uh, you know, one of the, 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 if you like, the genesis of a lot of this thing, is that they're just simply not used to being exposed to different ideas, not just hard ideas, but different ideas. Different ideas. I think that the... The, the sort of kernel of the book was how have we got to a situation where 18 year olds go to university and demand safe spaces, safety. Yeah. And they always use this word about, you know, they demand of the authorities that they're protected and are comfortable. And I thought, well, how extraordinary. I mean, you're 18, yeah. Yeah. you're going out into the world. The one thing that you didn't want to do was to feel safe and comfortable. I mean, it's like the most peculiar. I mean, yes. this is yeah. a moment when you should be saying, yeah, I'm gonna take on the world, you know, risky behavior, challenges, how exciting. The last thing you wanna say is, can I feel safe and comfortable? So trying to work out what had happened, I think that I recognized, uh, and I've, I, I'm from, I used to teach, I've always taken a great interest in education. I could see all of this kind of socializing of the young into a risk-averse, safety-first culture that our generation had done meant that young people were not only being protected from different ideas, but just had an expectation yeah. that they would be looked after and mollycoddled and, I mean, infantilized ever later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also yeah. have lost, the, lost their independence. I mean, we now oversee practically every activity that any young person does at all. Um, you know, you, you used to kind of have, oh, you know, go out and play in the playground and you know, there'd be a teacher supervising you barely. But now there's kind of CCTV cameras and monitors everywhere to make sure you're not bullying each other. But also, isn't it like in the education system where kids are sort of told that they are all, <coughs> you know, that they're, they're all Mozart, as it were, or rather, you know, that exactly. that's the other side of it. So, entirely, yeah. but when they say to make sure they're not bullying people, to just to make it clear, it's not that I want everybody to be bullying each other. Yeah. Um, but bullying has become a very wide term. So yeah, it's like, yeah. are you being nasty to somebody? Are you not talking to somebody is now considered to be bullying. And on the other hand, as you say, they're, they're put center stage and told how wonderful they are just by being young. Yes, yeah. And that creates a kind of sense of entitlement, a sense of 
expectation that my views are the most important views, actually the very opposite mm. of what an education system should do. I mean, mm. every young person's narcissistic. Mm. Everybody thinks that they're the center of the universe when you're, you know, from the age of 10, I mean, you think you count more than anyone else. Part of the learning experience of growing up is to realize that possibly your views are not correct and that you maybe ought to read the odd book, that you might change, that, that you maybe have to listen, not just speak. Whereas we've developed a culture where that is actually seen to be good educational practice. I think the thing is, maybe you'll find, uh, is that when you are commentating or discussing these things, you can discuss them and leave them open-ended. When you become a politician, people then say, well, what are you going to do about it then? What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, well, no, that, that's true. Although I'm standing for the European Parliament on the Brexit party, and I don't necessarily know that playground policy and uh, education will be it. <laughs> but, but you, you know, your show's uh, uh, called uh, What You're Saying Is. And so what you're saying is, and one of the things that I do realise about political life that's different than just being a commentator is part of my shtick at the Academy of Ideas, at the Battle of Ideas Festival, is to say, look behind the headline and the soundbite. Okay. You know, because people will always say, so what you're saying is this. You know, I've just said that, so they'll say, so what you're saying is you think it's really good that children are bullied. <laughs> and I'll say, no, that's not what I was saying. Um, and it's fine as a commentator to have, uh, and also my mission has been to say that politics is complicated, let's go the layers and let's talk about this with a bit more nuance and not caricature each other or try and delegitimize each other through labeling people. You can say all of that, but when you're a politician, I realize that if you say the one line, taken out of context, they'll be saying, so what you're saying is you support this, and I'm like, no. And I, I realise that I'm more, at, I'm more at risk of that. I reckon you'll be fine. Uh, Claire, thanks very, very much for coming in. Um, thank you for watching So What You're Saying Is. Uh, we'll see you next time. But in the meantime, please do subscribe. You'll see a button emerging on the screen. Um, and it's free. So please do. Thanks very much for watching. Bye-bye.